Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. I just had a great lunch today. One of my listeners, Charlie Oliver, who lives in Denver, Colorado, happens to be in Salt Lake, and he's heading back today, but we had a chance to get together for lunch. It's always nice to meet some of my listeners face-to-face. Thanks, Charlie, for coming by. This is the first part of a two-part interview with Skip Strong and Twain Braden. They're co-authors of the book In Peril, A Daring Decision, A Captain's Resolve, and The Salvage That Made History. Now, I first came across this book from an old podcast. A long time ago, there was a podcast put out called The Life of a Law Student. And I found this was a, a very engaging and very interesting podcast. It was put out by a man by the name of Neil Whitteman, and he was going to law school at the time, and for every class, he would do a podcast. So he talked about constitutional law, he talked about criminal law, he talked about torts, he talked about pretty much all the classes that a law student has to pass in order to get through law school, and of course, after that, then they take the bar exam. Now, Neil's been out of law school for a long time. He put out several podcasts on maritime law. And this is an area that I think you and I should be interested in. So I went and re-listened to one of the episodes on maritime law. And unfortunately for you, you can't go find these podcasts anymore out there. They're gone. But I never deleted the podcast that I downloaded. In fact, I had the full Life of a Law Student series on one of my iPods. And I won't delete them because I thought they were a great resource and a, a great way to, to basically understand the law. But the ones that I found most interesting were the ones on maritime law. And in one of the classes on maritime law, it wasn't one that Neil did, but it was another attorney, another student attorney, or I should say another law student, who was going to go to Tulane University, which is really the premier admiralty law school in the nation. And he talked about this case, the case that we're going to be talking about in this interview, It was a groundbreaking salvage case, and it was a case that made admiralty law or maritime law history in the United States. So I reached out to Skip Strong and Twain Braden and asked them if they would join me on the podcast, and they both said, sure, would love to. Skip is a great storyteller. I hope you enjoy this. And again, we're going to break this up into two parts. This went into, oh, it was about almost two hours Um, I think actually an hour and 45 minutes of recorded material before I started editing it down. And I thought this was just really too long for a single podcast. So I'm going to put out uh, the first part of a two-part episode this week, and we'll try to get the next one up next week. So I hope you enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed talking to them. I'm on the phone with Skip Strong and Twain Braden. Skip is the captain of the Cherry Valley. 
it's a great story. It's one of the old, well, it's the largest maritime settlement in American history, as far as I know. And you've got a great story to tell about, about salvage and heroism and courage and hurricanes. And Twain Braden is the co-author of the book, In Peril. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Thanks, guys, for, for joining me. I really appreciate you letting me interview you two. Oh, you're welcome, Franz. Thank you. It's great to great to be part of your show, Franz. Thank you. Okay, Twain, let's start with you because I was talking to you just before we started out, and, and you're the co-author of the story. Skip is the actual character in the story and the skipper and the hero of the story. Twain, how did you get involved in writing and being the co-author of this story? So I was working at the magazine Professional Mariner at the time, um, and I was the what was called the Maritime Casualties Editor, which meant, which means that it was my beat basically to every other month when we published this magazine to put together a kind of a, a, a survey of significant casualties that happened in the American, American um, uh, you know, sort of merchant fleet. So tugboats, uh, tankers, container ships, uh, you know, and, and from coast to coast, all three coasts really analyze what what happened in in accidents on ships um, near coastal offshore inland and I would I would take note of the most worthy ones and I would write the write up these reports I would interview uh, crew members I'd interview captains I'd interview pilots Coast Guard officers uh, NTSB investigators and and so that was my beat for about seven or eight years and then uh, and then one day uh, my phone rang and it was skip strong on the other other end of the phone and I hadn't known him previously, and he introduced himself, and and uh, he said, I, you know, I, I've got a story to tell you, and you, you know, you got a little bit of time. I said, sure, you know, tell me your story, and he proceeded to tell me the story that uh, that became this book in peril. And Skip, you're the character of it, you're the hero. You were. How old were you at the time? And let's start down the path of the story. Uh, I was 32 years old when this happened, and um, um, hero is not a term that I would use. Did that that night but it's um i know it gets bandied around a fair amount but we were you know captain of a ship you know i had a crew on board and everything else and one of the things i've learned over time being on the water is there are times where you can help and there are times where you ask for help and this particular night was a time that you know it was time for us to be able to offer some help it was just in some pretty unusual circumstances and you know pretty unique situation well let's let's set the stage you're on the uh, on the the vessel, the Cherry Valley. Describe the vessel, and how the adventure started. So the uh, the Cherry Valley is a um, or was. It's now uh, you're now probably shaving with it um, because it went to scrap a bunch of years ago. But it was a um, single skin oil tanker built back in 1974. Um, and this rescue happened in 1994. So the ship was 24 years, 20 years old at the time. Um, single skin oil tanker powered by a steam turbine plant, uh, which is different than most ships out there today. Most ships are diesel ships. Um, but we were, <clears throat> yeah, we were engaged in the trade of carrying um, generally heavy fuel oil, number six fuel oil for power plants, um, things like that from generally the Gulf Coast 
on up to the East Coast. And we would be on that, you know, on that run, just moving oil back and forth. I mean, the ship was a very nice ship for doing that. It was efficient, ran well. We had a crew of about 25 people on board at that point in time. Um, and that, that was what we did. And when this story's happened, we took off from the Mississippi River after loading at several docks um, around the 12th of November. We left the Mississippi River. Forecast was pretty good. But we um, <clears throat> we generally every time we sail and go to sea, we always secure the deck. We take everything off the deck. The lines are all secured. Life rings are removed. Everything's essentially lashed down, because one of the disadvantages of a single skin tanker is your ballast tanks are part are internal with the cargo tanks. So if you have, uh, in our case, we had 18 um, tanks on this ship. Um, four of those, essentially what would be considered cargo tanks, were segregated clean ballast. So we read, we rode fairly low in the water. We only had about 12 and a half feet of freeboard. So you take even moderate seas out in the ocean, we had pretty wet decks out there. Conversely, the same ship or same you know, amount of cargo on a ship today would have a freeboard of you know 18 to 20 feet. Um, so significantly drier vessels today than, um, than what we were on. But we were... Um, Running, uh, you know, running around from uh, the Mississippi River going up to Jacksonville to discharge. There was a little disturbance down in the Caribbean when we took off, um, but it wasn't forecasted to do much. And as we, you know, kept going and getting down there and going through the Gulf of Mexico and around Florida, first of all, the storm was forecasted to go to the northeast and exit out of the Caribbean and head out into the Atlantic. Um, then it went over Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Uh, the storm essentially stopped, took a hard left turn, um, and that's when it started coming, you know, sort of straight at us for the first time when we were going through the um, Straits of Florida. And, um, you know, not bad conditions for us, you know, northeast winds, you know, 35 knots or so, but we're going in the Gulf Stream you know, around the Florida Keys, and so you've got northeast wind against a, you know, current that's essentially going east to northeast, so pretty crappy conditions out there as far as we were concerned. I mean, not bad for the ship, but, you know, we're in 18 to 20 foot seas um, all the time and just pounding our way through the Gulf Stream to, to getting around and do that. Um, but we passed the storm on the 14th or the storm passed below us as we were going around the Keys. We figured we'd do nothing but <clears throat> get in better conditions as we kept moving up and around the uh, coast of Florida. Well, a storm decided to park itself just north of um, Key West and Dry Tortugas there. Um, and as we continued on around, we thought things would just get better and better as we got farther away from the storm. Um, we passed, you know, passed by, you know, Port Everglades, Miami area the evening of the 14th. And then early on the morning of the 15th is when we, you know, my second mate who was on watch from the midnight to 4 a.m. watch, you know, called me and said, hey, uh, just the Coast Guard's relaying a distress call. And that's when everything sort of started to happen with this particular um, with this particular rescue. So who was issuing the distress call and, and what were the circumstances? So the uh, the distress call, the way we got it, first of all, was the Coast Guard was relaying a marine assistance request. So we were too far away from uh, the tugboat that was giving the you know, calling the Coast Guard for assistance. Um, but they were relaying it to any vessels in the area who could do it. And what we were basically told at that point in time was that there was a tug and barge 
sort of off the coast of Fort Pierce, um, up you know the eastern you know east coast of Florida, that was um, having you know having engine room difficulties, is what we were told. And um, we, uh, you know, we got the call, and as you know, as required, sort of by you know not sort of like, but is required by law. Um, especially for U.S. flag vessels and people operating in U.S. waters, if someone's in distress, we're required to go off and offer assistance if we can, um, but only up until the point of, you know, it puts my ship, my crew, my cargo in jeopardy. Um, but at this point in time, at, you know, a little after one o'clock or so in the morning, all it was was the Coast Guard was putting out a, um, a marine assistance request for this tugboat, um, I went up and talked to the second mate about it. We were a good couple of hours away from being up in there. I had the second mate call the Coast Guard back and say, you know, just tell them it's like, hey, we're in the area. Well, you know, we're not there yet, but we're heading up that way. We'll be up there in a couple hours. Hopefully they either solve their problems or um, someone else has come in to um, offer assistance to them. All right. I want to go back to the turbine, the steam turbine uh, ship because I'm not I, I I understand them now but I wasn't familiar with them until I read your book, so explain the difference between what we usually think of now as big diesel or you know big ship engines with pistons and I guess you'd almost say diesel but it doesn't really run on diesel it's a fuel oil versus the steam turbine and how you increase or decrease power in a steam turbine engine. So the, the, the premise behind a steam, a steam turbine engine is you have um, one or more boilers that you will generate steam in. So you've got, you're burning some type of fuel oil, generally heavy fuel oil, uh, to create heat, which translates up to um, you know, water, water tubes in a, in a boiler, and you're generating steam. And then that steam is channeled through both a high-pressure and a low-pressure turbine, almost like a jet engine turbine. Um, except you're running instead of you're running um, air through it, you're running um, steam through it, and so this is the way you can. Um, it's a multi-stage turbine, so let's say high pressure and low pressure, um, and it goes. It, it, that's how you generate um, power going to a reduction gear that turns the propeller. Um, they are um, relatively um, complex systems they take they definitely take more people to run um you know more engineers to run and more sort of tinkering and fiddling about with them to keep them up and running but they are an absolutely beautiful um propulsion plant because they'll last almost indefinitely as long as they're well taken care of um and <clears throat> one of the beauties of the steam turbine is <clears throat> You can get infinite control of that engine as opposed to, you know, putting something onto like a dead slow, a slow bell or having limited RPMs or thing or that with a typical diesel ship or, or a motor ship. Um, we can ask for anything we want from the engineers, but down below and they can give it to it because they have the ability to manipulate the steam pressure um, and give us what we want. And including going from full ahead to full astern. Um, multiple times because all they're doing is they're managing steam pressure and they can sit there and do that. Whereas with a motor ship or a diesel ship these days, um, the way you start and stop an engine is with air pressure and they have a big receiver to hold the air in it. Um, but you're limited. You start and stop an engine, you know, you've got roughly 12 stops 
in a limited time period, and then you're out of air, um, and you can't start or stop the engine. Um, and this is something that uh, today uh, I would never even consider trying to do this type of a, a rescue with a with a motor ship today. I mean, we had the infinite control with that steam plant to be able to do stuff there. I was curious on the steam turbine. Would it generate fresh water for the crew and the and the boat? Would it would the steam be re rehydrated i guess and and would would you use that for fresh water on the ship so you uh you you don't necessarily use that steam that you're running for the engine but you do have an evaporator on board that you are using um you are basically distilling salt water into making fresh water you have a you know, basically a desalinization plant on board so yeah we made our own fresh water and it was absolutely beautiful tasting fresh water on board okay so it was basically a, a distilled water then is what you yep. had then okay. oh yeah all right all right so continuing on with this story when you arrived at the scene take the story away from there so the uh so we talked to talked to the coast guard around one one o'clock or so one twenty or so in the morning um i went back down to my cabin there wasn't anything i could do or needed to do on the bridge um, came back up an hour or so later, um, and we were um, just starting to get within um, radio range of the tugboat. And the second mate was just finishing up a call with these guys. And so what we what we heard was going on with these guys was they had lost. You know, this is a 135 foot long conventional tugboat, you know, ocean going tugboat. I mean, good, powerful tugboat you know that's designed to do nothing but tow tow things offshore um they have two engines um i think their combined horsepower was i think it was around 3000 3500 horsepower so they were about 1800 horsepower for each engine they had lost the port engine didn't say why they'd lost the port engine but the port engine was just not working so they were down to half power to begin with um, on the starboard engine, they'd lost four out of the eight cylinders on the starboard engine. Again, didn't really know why they'd lost those four cylinders. Wasn't really um, germane to what we were doing, you know, doing or going to try and do that evening. Um, but one of the things that had happened is they'd um, uh, one of the exhaust valves on one of the cylinders. Um, had gotten a whole lot of wasn't wasn't burning diesel through the cylinder. They were collecting diesel fuel in the exhaust manifold. And as that exhaust manifold heated up to the auto ignition temperature of the diesel, they would spit out fireballs out of the stack. You know, they you know the the diesel would you know reach its auto ignition, ex basically burn or explode, shoot the fireballs out of the stack. Well, one of those fireballs was big enough that they ruptured the um, exhaust manifold inside the engine room. They had a uh, I don't know four or five inch diameter hole in the exhaust manifold. And so when they would reach the auto ignition temperature of the diesel after that point, as well as spitting fireballs out of the engine room uh, or out of the stack, they'd be spitting them into the engine room as well. Uh, so they were uh, they were having some they were having some difficulties. And also, as we're getting up there closer to them, the weather that, you know, the storm system is um, which was Tropical Storm Gordon at this point in time was sitting off of Key West. We thought we should be getting into better weather at this point in time. Um, but what we were finding was we were in uh, 15 to 20 foot seas was probably some bigger ones out there. Um, uh, northeast winds, east to northeast winds, 40 to 50 knots. 
um, higher gust in there. Fortunately, up until this point in time, no rain really, but you know, it was uh, it was not very good conditions out there. Not bad for us just to steam up to go to Jacksonville, but these guys on the tugboat were definitely having a bad night out there with the stuff that was going on. And when their uh, and when their engine or their manifold would heat up to the point where they would start spitting these fireballs out, they'd have to shut their engine, that starboard engine, down to the manifold cool, cooled off, and then they could start it up again. When they were able to keep that starboard engine running, they were basically holding their own in these conditions. They weren't drifting backwards or towards the coast of Florida, uh, but when they had to shut that engine down, um, the barge they were towing uh, would start pulling them backwards um, at about two and a half to three knots. So they were, um, they were, you know, the coast of Florida was getting closer and closer to them all the time. Okay, so describe the geography of the area that you're going into. You were near some shoals, correct? So we were uh, if, uh, on the uh, for the coast of Florida is relatively um, benign for most of the area out there. There aren't very many offlying shoals, but where these guys were having their difficulty was um, off of um, uh, Fort Pierce, and um, you know the uh, the shoal that they were they, they were near a shoal. They were just upwind of a shoal by about five or six miles when all this stuff happened. It was called Bethel Shoal. Is the name of the shoal that sits out there in the, um, you know, off the coast of Florida there. And 28 feet is no problem for this tugboat. Tug's probably only drawing, you know, 12, 13 feet. The barge they were carrying, I think they said, was drawing seven or eight feet, not a very deep draft. The problem is that my ship that I'm carrying 235,000 barrels of number six oil on, I'm drawing 35 feet of water. So I don't want to get anywhere near that shoal area. Um, so we, uh, we start talking about, yeah, what their problems are, what we might do and try and come up with an idea of if we're going to be able to help them and how we're going to go about doing that because no one else has been able to come out there and do anything for those guys. And we finally got up to them at about, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. Now, during this hurricane, another ship was in distress. You talk about it in your book. Um, so can you go through that a little bit with me, or do you want to just skip that over right now? Well, there were there were a couple other things. So the Coast Guard was uh, the Coast Guard was certainly involved with this one, trying to see if anyone was out there. But at the same point in time, the Coast Guard was also dealing with two other ships out there. One was a little um, freighter that we went past um, uh, earlier on the four, the 14th as we were going around the Keys, um, a little um, oh, inner island you know uh, cargo ship that had, you know, basically taken water on board, was a danger sinking. Coast Guard had to go out and airlift all of those guys off before the ship, that ship sank. So the Coast Guard was busy doing that. And then, of course, a little, that little ship doesn't sink, but it's getting ready to go aground on the Keys. So they've got to figure out a way to, you know, sink that thing before it runs up into the marine preserves down on the Keys. So they're busy trying to get authorization to go off and sink that thing before it runs aground. And there's also another freighter that was anchored off of Fort uh, Port Everglades that was um, wound up dragging their anchor and going aground um, just above the breakwaters going into Port Everglades. So the Coast Guard was dealing with that in the middle of the night as well, as well as, you know, this, you know, tug and barge was having um, their difficulties that evening. Twain, I want to bring you in here and just just go through a little bit of, because you're an, you're an 
admiralty attorney, a maritime attorney right now, correct, Wayne? Yeah, that's right, here in Portland, Maine. But you weren't at the time, so tell us about your, your training and what led you to become a maritime attorney. And then we're going to go into, I want you to just, just outline the uh, briefly the law of salvage before we get to the next part of the, tr- the story here. Sure. So when, um, when Skip and I became co-ventures in this book, uh, I was a magazine editor. I'd, I'd, I'd been to sea as a, as a sail training guy, a schooner captain. Um, so I had some familiarity with, with operations, but not anything like what, what Skip did and his crew and all that. It was, uh, it was, you know, sort of very different world. Um, but as a magazine editor, I, I was immersed in sea stories, and when Skip's story came along, and I really started to uh, dig into it a little bit, uh, we ended up—I should say—we ended up publishing um, an abbreviated version of it in the magazine in, in two sections, in two parts, in two consecutive issues. Um, you know, the the more I kind of read the background material, the the more I read Skip's story and spoke to Skip, and and then and then it kind of became a story that took a life on its own, um, I realized how much of a connection salvage law had to our past and our past, our maritime past. So our past connection to England and the laws that we inherited uh, through the common law from England. And then as you start sort of pulling at that thread, you realize that the laws, the common laws of salvage that, um, that England had are really connected to the laws of the Mediterranean. And, and, you know, you can really go back many, many hundreds and even over a thousand years to um, to the or thousands of years to the Eastern Mediterranean um, to 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 sort of find the, the the roots of our salvage laws, and that that was just that was just interesting to me um, that we had these these laws that you know the more I learned about it, the more I realized they were essentially just they're just codes, p- things that customs that people could understand if you were a, a shipmaster or, or a uh, or a merchant um, trading vessels in the in the Mediterranean and you know two or three thousand years ago you had these you had these uh, these understandings with one another this you know this all predated nation states this you know before Spain existed before Italy before you know this is <clears throat> even before the Roman Empire you had commerce and so you had to have this sort of understanding between ships for, for waterborne transport. Um, so that, that just was interesting to me as a, you know, at a kind of an academic level. Um, and so I felt like there was more to the story than simply a couple of magazine pieces, which then, you know, got skipping me to talking about, um, what, what could eventually grow into a book because there was so much depth there in, in terms of salvage law. So, then after the book came out, um, I, you know, my abide, my abiding interest in the sea, and it really spawned an interest in going to law school. Um, and so, I, I, when I did go to law school, I I studied maritime law and took all the courses that were offered. I went to the Charleston School of Law in Charleston, South Carolina, um, and they started a uh, a little maritime institute there. So it really kind of breathed life into a second career for me. Okay, so how old were you when you went back to law school then? I was about the age Skip was when he was captain of Cherry Valley, so this, I was 32. So Skip, you arrive on the scene, and why did you decide to try to take the salvage instead of, you know, you were obligated to save lives, but were not obligated to save property? What made you decide to do that? 
So as we were uh, as we're getting up there and you know talking to um, you know talking to the tugboat as we're starting to get close to this area about what's going on and the captain's describing this you know telling us what's going on in his boat and you know he's sort of describing the things that are happening on his boat like it's got he's got to take his car in to get service next week. I mean, very calm, cool individual um, over there. But you know, uh, I've been at sea long enough to understand and can sort of read between the lines. Is like these guys are having a really bad night out there, um, and they need you know they definitely need some help. Um, and the question is, is what are we going to do? Um, so we, we talk about as we're getting up in there and looking at this stuff and these guys are getting, you know, dragged to dragged to the west towards closer towards the uh, coast of Florida. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time to do stuff if we're going to do, do something to help. So anyway, we, we start, uh, you know, we start talking about, you know, we realize we don't have a lot of time to do something. Uh, no one else has responded out in the area. The coast guard can't get out there to do any helping because they are, um, they can't. They only have small boats in the area down in Fort Pierce, and they can't get their boats out through the breakwaters because of the conditions at this point in time. So we start talking about what our options are um, with the yeah you know, with Lonnie Wiles, the captain on the Ogeron, um, and we basically lay it out as there there are three things we could possibly do. One is try and pick up both the tug and the barge and take the, you know, get some lines over the tug, take the tug and the barge that they're towing in tow and try and keep them safe. The second thing would be to do would be to cut the barge loose. Just let the barge go adrift. Um, let the wire spool off the drum, let that go. And then just take the tug in tow. And if then, if they really start having, you know, an uncontrolled fire in the engine room, just, get the five guys off the tugboat, get close enough or get the guys in the water, and then we could get them on board of our ship. So those were the three things that we talked about trying to do. Um, you know, and I sort of joke about it, but, you know, being born and raised in New England, I hate to throw anything away unless it's absolutely necessary. So we, we went for the first thing to do was to try and take the tug and the barge in tow. Um, and the way that we were going to do that was try and maneuver close enough to the tugboat so we could get our line throwing gun um, which is in a rocket propelled <laughs> uh yeah weight that uh carries a very thin diameter line over to it get that over to shoot that over towards the tugboat get that line over then they could put a messenger line on we could put a messenger line on that and get a couple of our mooring lines tied onto that get them over to the bow of the tug and then try and get those secured and then just, you know, tow these guys sort of out of the way of the area, get them away from that shoal area um, and try and keep them safe till, you know, a better vessel more suited to doing this stuff could get down there and um, do this. Cause generally tugs tow tankers, tankers don't tow tugs, but you know, middle of the night and no one else around you, you do what you, you can. Um, part of the reason why we thought we could even attempt this was I had a, a very, very good crew on board my ship. I had extremely competent engineers who knew how to handle that plant very well. And I had very good people on the deck department. I mean, I was going to be putting these guys in probably some pretty dangerous situations. Um, and I trusted that they knew what their jobs were and how to do it. And they trusted me that I wasn't going to do anything so foolish as to really get them, um, you know, put their lives in jeopardy. Um, and there's sort of the, the code of the sea. If you can go off and offer some help, you're going to try and do it. Uh, that's essentially what we did. <clears throat> we, uh, 
we uh, we came up with a you know the first plan of attack was to just pick them up going by as we were headed north we we're going to pick them up on our port side and try and get stopped in front of them get the line over to them and take them under tow but as we were approaching into doing that um, things just didn't feel right for what we were going to do so we had to sort of stop get everything changed around and go up and make a big turn in front of the tug and get uh, come down and pick them up sort of us heading south. Um, and with the uh, tug on our starboard side um, and try and um, get over there and use the line throwing gun with the whole premise being that we were going to get stopped up wind of the tugboat, we would act as sort of a breakwater so the guys on the tug could get out on the bow of the boat um, and grab this heaving, you know, messenger line or the, the line from the line throwing gun and then get everything on board. Um, one of the disadvantages of trying to do this going downwind is one of the uh, one of the problems with a steam turbine plant is the way that you make the engine go in reverse is do you run the steam through the turbine backwards? Um, the efficiency goes way down. You've got essentially forty percent efficiency on a steam turbine at that point in time. So. As I'm going downwind with a loaded 40,000-ton tanker, um, with wind pushing me, with the seas pushing me, um, I could not get the our ship stopped in time to do it. We did shoot the line-throwing gun across, but it was uh, shooting a black line in a black night, um, and the rain had started at this point in time. And so we really couldn't see it. And by the time I'd actually gotten the ship slowed down enough or almost stopped, we were far enough past the uh, tugboat that we couldn't we couldn't do it. You couldn't make a connection that time. So we had to sort of stop, get everyone off the deck of our ship, go up, get turned around to try and get in position as we tried to make another pass. And each one of these passes that we're doing takes about 20 minutes and we're eating up. Um, a, a chunk of ground as we uh, are sort of chasing this tug and barge as she's sort of drifting to the west and we're getting closer and closer to the shoal area. We're still far enough away that I can easily make another pass. We get up, turned around, and the second mate and chief mate who are the, you know, sort of the guys who are running the deck department out there, um, we're all talking on our, you know, internal sort of handheld UHF radios, and they asked, they said, well, do you think you could get close enough so we could use heaving lines, which are just three-eighths inch diameter lines with a monkey's weighted monkey's fist on the end. Um, the effective range of those is, you know, 80 to 100 feet on a good day. So we would have to be pretty close to the tugboat, but none of us like the idea of shooting those line throwing guns. Um, they have a notorious habit of not going where you want them to until you actually aim at something and then you're going to hit it. Um, so we didn't really want to use the line throwing a gun, gun again. So I tried to get close enough that we could use a um, one of the heaving lines. We got turned around, got back into position, got close enough to them, got probably 80 or so, 90 feet off the bow of the tug. Um, we're still acting as a breakwater for the seas coming over our port side. Um, and one of my ABs is down there, makes a great throw with the heaving line, gets it over to the tug. Um, the... Guys are hooking up the messenger line that we have. We had two messenger lines. One was 400 feet. One was 800 feet. They unfortunately hooked up the 400-foot one, which no fault on theirs. It's just like you grab the end of the line that you can see in the middle of the night there. Um, but before, same problem I had the first time, couldn't get the ship stopped in time. By the time we got the 
messenger line hooked up and we're getting it ready to tie onto the mooring lines, we parted that messenger line. It just couldn't get the ship stopped um, in time. <clears throat> um, so it was for one of those good news, bad news situations. The good news is we knew we could do it. The bad news is we didn't. Um, but we felt we had um, enough time to make one more pass around to get back in shape and try this again before I was going to run out of room or get up close enough to the shoal area where I'm not going to go over that shoal area. Um, I'm not going to get anywhere close enough to that thing, you know, for me. I mean, if I put, if I wound up going on that shoal with my ship in those conditions, Joe Hazelwood, who was the uh, captain of the Exxon Valdez, would have probably been a footnote to my name if I had spilled oil in the water off the east coast of Florida. But, but anyway, we had a, uh, we, we thought we could do, you know, I felt confident we had enough time to make one more pass, quickly got everything up, circled around, made another pass in there. Finally, you know, three times is the charm, finally figured out how to get the ship stopped, got it stopped. And this is the beauty of having a steam plant and engineers down there is I could talk to the engineers. I said, I need you to give me, yeah, I could say, I need everything you've got. And also the, one of the engineers, the chief engineer could get up, sort of go on deck, look at what was happening, you know, as much as you could in the middle of the night and relay down to the guys who are, you know, actually manning the throttles down there and say, yep, this is what's happening. You know, go ahead you know, give it, you know, give it all you got, um, type of thing. And they were able to, able to do that. Finally able to get the ship stopped directly upwind of the tugboat, you know, and our goal had been to get within about, you know, 70, 80 feet of the tugboat. Well, we finally did a good enough job to do this that one of my ABs was able to walk up to the, the manifold on the starboard side of our ship, which is about halfway up from the house to the bow and was able to walk up to the rail, um, and hand the heaving line over to the guys in the bow of the tugboat um, as they were sitting there perpendicular to the starboard side of the ship. Um, and they were able to then get, you know, get that heaving line on board. Of course, this time we got the 800-foot messenger on there, so they have to get all of that messenger on board and then um, um, then get the, get the two mooring lines uh, that we had available out there. But the problem that we encountered this time is we were getting hooked up is we were getting blown sideways all the time. The tug, the engines on the tug were essentially shut down at this point in time. So what happened is the tug folded in alongside of our ship. So their port side was resting along our starboard side of the ship. And we were both rolling in these seas, which were, you know, solid 15 to 20 foot with some bigger ones thrown in there. Now, fortunately, the winds blowing about 50 to 60 knots up there and it's raining sideways. So as I'm standing on the starboard bridge wing and looking down, I can't hear anything as far as the steel hitting on the sides of the ship. Um, unlike the engineers down in the engine room who can't see anything and all they can hear is steel hitting steel over there as we're doing this. But the, I'm looking at the guys on the tugboat who are rapidly you know, trying to get those messenger line on board to get the um, boring lines pulled on board. We um, were looking at that, and as I'm looking down at the bridge wing and looking down on the after deck of the tugboat, it's all—it's sort of one of those oh shit moments. Um, as I look down, I see the tow wire from the tug um, leading off the port quarter of the tug, um, and it goes into the water. The barge is somewhere downwind um, off to their starboard side, but I don't know where. And they have about a two and a quarter inch diameter tow wire. Um, 
and it's going into the water right around where my rudder and propeller are. And this is, this is not good um, because if I get that wire fouled in either my rudder or my propeller, um, I'm going to be on Bethel Shoals in a very short period of time. And that's now only... So your propeller's not turning at this point in time, right? No, we're stopped. We're stopped. I've got the ship stopped. We're in position. Nothing's moving. I'm not using the rudder. I'm not using the propeller. We're sort of stopped waiting to get all the lines on board the tugboat before we try and start moving. But as they folded in alongside of us, I had sort of hoped they would have just been slowly drifting astern of us, but we they sort of got pinned along our starboard side. So they weren't able to do that. And Bethel Shoal is now only about five ship lengths downwind from me. Now, granted, each one of my ship lengths is, you know, almost 700 feet. So it's a good half a mile still downwind of us. But that's not a whole lot of room. And we're only in about 70 feet of water. So what I've got, and I'm looking at this, and so I quickly get on the VHF radio, the handheld radio that I've got to the captain of the tug, and said, I don't know what you've got left in your engines, but you have to back clear before I can do anything. I can't do anything until I know you're clear and I know that that wire's clear. Otherwise, we're all potentially all going to be in a world of hurt here. So big belch of black smoke comes out of the starboard engine. Um, they're able to slowly um, uh, just back clear enough so they can get astern of us. We're able to get the uh, two mooring lines over to the bow of the tugboat. Um, and able to then start, you know, paying out as much line as we can, and then I can start worrying about trying to, you know, get ourselves, get us pointed away from the shoal area, and you know, basically try and take the tug and the barge, you know, pick up speed very slowly, um, and try and get all of us away from that shoal area. So you get, you are able to get them in tow, and how long were you towing them, and and then. Did the weather cooperate or did it deteriorate further? So the uh, so during this during this whole evolution that we were starting up with this in communication with um, the Coast Guard, um, obviously fairly continuously, and also wound up being in um, uh, touch with a port captain for this barge, who was sort of in charge of it as if this barge was being towed around from the, ironically, the New Orleans area as well, and going up into Port Canaveral. Um, and this barge was, um, you know, the port captain was there to meet it. He'd been alerted by the Coast Guard that there was a problem. He wound up getting down to the coast and was on a VHF radio and was able to talk to us. And he said, hey, don't worry about it. I've got a tug contracted. They're going to be down here. All you got to do is keep them safe for a couple of hours. Um, and we'll have another tugboat down here to relieve you guys. So this is great. I can, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 32 years old. Um, you know, I figure I can do anything for two hours, you know, so all we had to do was keep these guys safe for a couple hours. Tugboat was going to be down there. It's now getting to be also just about 6.20, or so in the morning. It's starting to get light out. We're finally able to see some of the stuff that's going on because up until this point in time, we're seeing nothing but running lights. Um, and that's about it because it's pitch black rain, just, you know, essentially zero visibility for the most part. As it starts to get light, we're able to see some things. And as I look back in behind us, you've got, you know, this tugboat that's attached to two mooring lines behind, behind us. And then behind the, the tugboat is this barge that looks, looks just like a Quonset hut sitting on a barge. And I've been to sea for... Uh, just about 12 years at this point in time. And I'd seen a lot of barges over my career, but 
never seen one that looked like this. So I called the captain on the tug and said, what the hell do you have back in there? And he said, well, I didn't want to tell you before, but it's the liquid fuel cell for the space shuttle. And uh, it was uh, kind of interesting. I mean, I grew up in the, you know, born in the 60s and raised in the 70s and was a big fan of the space program and still am. And so that was really interesting to me that, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. Well, one of the one of the crew members we had on board was a radio operator at the time before they took the radio operators off of our ships. And our my radio operator was a relatively young guy who had done a bunch of different um things in his career. And one of them was worked for Lockheed Martin, um, sort of designing satellites. Uh, so he was involved in the space program and he had been up there on the bridge, sort of keeping track of our position by GPS as we were trying to move away from the shoal area. This was long before we had chart plotters or anything else like this. We were fortunate we even had a GPS on board at this point in time. Um, but he was just sort of keeping track of our progress and whether we were moving to the to the right or, or to the east or to the west. And so he scribbles on a piece of paper and, and hands it or holds it up for me to read. And he said, that's valuable. <laughs> As, as we heard what was on the uh, on the um, on the on the barge, <clears throat> and I said, you know, kind of interesting, but really not important at this point in time because all we're really trying to do is keep these, you know, keep these five guys on the tug safe and hopefully keep the barge safe until this next tugboat can get down there and do it. But we got things sort of settled out. All I'm trying to do is sort of move slowly away from the shoal area. Um, it's also one of those things, you know, I, even I can tell at this point in time, this is kind of a unique situation because tugboats tow tankers, tankers don't tow tugboats. So I run down to my cabin, which was one deck down below, um, grabbed my cell phone because I figured it's time to probably call my boss and tell him what's going on. And I also grabbed my camera cause I said, this is going to be worth having a picture of. Um, and just, you know, went down to my cabin real quick, got that stuff back up there, got up to the bridge, called my boss. Uh, who was still at home in bed and called him up and woke him up in the morning and said, hey, good morning, Art, and skip on the Cherry Valley. Um, I'm going to be a little late getting to Jacksonville today. And he said, oh, yeah, is the weather slowing you down down there? And I said, well, the weather's slowing me down a little bit, but it's really the tug and barge I'm towing astern of me that are slowing me down. Um, that got his full attention, and I essentially gave him a 30-second rundown of what had happened, told him, you know, ship is safe, crew is safe, cargo safe, there's a tugboat on the way, we're going to be done with this by in two hours, um, I'll call you at the office at 0900 um, with an update of what happened, um, and hung up on him, went up and took a couple pictures, and then just tried to keep everything going safe and smooth for the next couple of hours, and, and the conditions were um, basically stayed the same, just east to north northeast winds 50 to 60 knots um you know higher gust torrential rain pour um fort pierce which was just downwind of us wound up having about 12 inches of rain in a 24-hour period um there were some water spouts in the area um it was just you know some pretty pretty nasty conditions out there for the day but it's a not bad for our ship um but not a lot of fun to be trying to do this stuff in okay so did the tug arrive on the scene and take over your tow? Well, the the tug the tug when it left port, we were told it was a three thousand horsepower ocean going um, tug, and as the tug 
kept getting closer, the tug kept getting smaller um, as the as the details of this tug be got, uh, became known. And, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning, they were still two hours away. At eight o'clock, they were two hours away. At nine o'clock, they were still two hours away. Um, they really just the conditions out there were really bad for the tugboat. And it wound up being about a sixteen hundred horsepower harbor tug with a soft hawser as opposed to an ocean going you know, tug, you know, uh, tug with a, you know, uh, a wire, wire winch on board. Um, but they were willing to come out in this and we were happy to have anyone who wanted to come out and help. So they were making their way to us, but occasionally they just had to heave to during the, during the trip down there just to get up to us. Um, but they, uh, they eventually did get up to us, but we had to hold when well, they got up to us about noontime, but we had to hold off. I mean, we could, it, the conditions were bad enough that uh, no one could really get out on deck to do anything other than just, you know, try and, you know, maintain the sort of status quo. <clears throat> so the name of that tug was the South Bend, right? That was the South Bend that came out that morning. Yes. Okay. Now they never were able to take over the tug, were they? Or the no, tow? No, they they were not. They so they got up there at um they got up there at uh, around noontime. And so so backing up a little bit to um about nine o'clock when I had um told the you know, told my boss that I would call in to the to the company and let him know what was going on. Um, so I called in, got the receptionist on the phone, and I said, good morning, it's Captain Strong in the Cherry Valley. And she said, oh, yes, Captain, they're expecting your phone call. And I got put into a conference room where there were a whole bunch of people um, on uh, the, the speakerphone. Um, and I, I just started my second trip as captain. So um, I hadn't even really been in the office that much, didn't really even know many of the voices that were on the phone. But, you know, number one concerns around the company were, you know, is the ship safe, is the crew safe, is the cargo safe? You know, um, they established all that. And the, you know, people were saying, you know, congratulations, nice job. What's happening? When's the tug getting there? And I said, two hours, the tug will be here. Um, we should all be done with this. The last person who got on the phone that morning was the, um, the in-house counsel for Keystone, a gentleman by the name of Ralph Hill. And Ralph got on the phone and said, congratulations, Captain Strong. Um, very nice job. You now have salvage rights to everything behind you that you have in tow. Um, and as soon as he said that, I really wished I'd spent a little more time awake in my Admiralty Law class back at Maine Maritime Academy um, because I was a little rusty on what the real parameters were for salvage law. Um, you know, wasn't anything that I was ever going to be thinking of doing a salvage myself. I might be on the other end of it needing to be salvage, but never looked, really looked at it in the consideration of, um, you know, us being the salvors. All right. So now you know you have something valuable behind you, but you still have, you're not out of trouble yet. So are you able to make your way against the wind and current, or are you losing way? Are you getting closer? Are you getting in, putting your vessel in jeopardy? So during, so during the whole morning, while we're sort of, we're generally steaming, you know, making good a course of about due south, I'm steering, the heading of the ship is about southeast, 
Um, the speed on the engine is we're basically if we were in flat water, we should be making about six knots. Um, but what we're doing is we're making good just about one eight zero. So due south. So we've cut roughly 45 degrees of leeway and we're making just over a knot of speed over the ground. Um, and that roughly follows the, the you know, 10 fathom curve or the 60 foot curve going down the east coast of Florida, which is what I do not want to go inside. My ship is drawing 35 feet of water or in 15 to 20 foot seas at the bottom of those troughs. And I'm essentially beam two in a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, my fathometer is not real happy about that. I mean, I'm getting within eight to 10 feet of the bottom um, as we're doing this. That's pretty uncomfortable in, you know, open ocean to be that close to the bottom in those types of conditions. But, uh, you know, it's relatively flat, sandy bottom. I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, but as this other tug is working its way up to us, it's like, okay, you got to, you know, let's, let's get up here. Let's get this taken care of because I can't do this forever. Um, you know, finally at um, noontime, the, the, the Osier or the South Bend gets up to us. Um, we uh, try and we just can't do anything. So finally around 1400, we say, listen, something's got to happen. You got to get in there to do it. So they essentially tried to do the same thing we did. They got upwind of the tugboat, sent over a heaving line um, with that was tied on to their um, soft hawser that they had for towing. Um, and they had a wire bridle on the end of it that was going to ride over the, the bow of the, the Ogeron, the tug we were towing. Um, and they were going to do all, do all that, take it all in tow, just, you know, get everything on there, take a strain on it. They'd cut our lines and then they tow the, uh, Ogeron and the, the barge off and we would be over and done with. Um, but as they were doing this and getting it over there, they got their heaving line over, they started pulling everything over. But they just had a soft hawser on board. And what they did is they put the entire 1,800 feet of this hawser in the water before they had a solid connection. And as they were pulling this wire bridle through the bullnose of the Ogeron, the heaving line that they were using to pull it in through parted. So they didn't get a connection. Um, and there was they had to get all 1,800 feet of this hawser back on board before they could try again. Um, the capstan wasn't really working on the, the south bend, so they had to essentially chase their hawser downwind and pull it on board as they were running downwind and the strain was taken off of this thing um, and so they could get it back on board. So these guys were out of the picture um, and then we're sort of just left you know, wondering what are we going to do next. Um, and that's when, um, yeah, we just, we're just biding our time till the South Bend gets up there. But it's, uh, if you look at a chart over there, the coast of Florida actually starts working back out to the East. We're getting closer and closer to the, uh, 60 foot curve. Um, there are fish havens, um, marked on the charts, which are nothing but wrecks, um, which I don't want to be going over. Um, so we're running out of time. And this is where, you know, the port captain for um, the barge, who was, you know, port captain for NASA, um, an ex-Navy um, uh, ex guy, a graduate of the Naval Academy, sailed on destroyers, destroyer escorts, his captain, just a really great guy, really smart, um, and removed from the scene enough that he was a really big help to me. He said, what about anchoring your ship? And it was one of those things that it's like, if I'd been smart enough, I would have thought of it on my own. 
Um, but as soon as he said it, it made absolutely perfect sense. And we're only in about 70 feet of water. It's looking like good holding ground. I've got two good anchors. You know, I could easily anchor in this stuff. I've certainly been anchored in worse conditions than this. Um, I would have no problem sitting there and anchoring. The, the big question is what's going to happen when we stop moving and the tug and barge are still moving somewhat? You know, are my lines going to be able to, you know, withstand that strain? That was the only real question we had, but we were running out of distance our space to do it. So that was the ultimate decision we had to do was uh, we were going to go to anchor. Um, the South Bend, you know, heard all this conversation going on. They said, great, you're going to go to anchor. We're going to go into port. Um, we're going to just keep going downwind. Our line's on board. We're going to go down into wind into Fort Pierce and um, go to, uh, uh, go to, you know, stay, stay safe down there. And I said, well, how about if you guys come back up here and stand by? Because if we part those two lines when my anchor's down, um, there's no way um, we're going to be able to do anything. And then you could come up here and pick up the pieces. So they uh, they they agreed somewhat reluctantly, but they were going to start coming back up there to help out and stand by in case something went wrong. Um, as we're getting ready to go anchor, and which is a an evolution in itself, because I've got to get my guys, you know, the bosun, the chief mate, and a couple of ABs up to the forecastle head, which is fortunately a raised forecastle head on this ship. Um, but I got to get them up the main deck, up on the forecastle head, get the anchors cleared so they can let the anchors go. And just as we're getting ready to let the anchor go on our ship, we hear a mayday call over channel 16. It's the South Bend. Um, they've lost a hatch in their after deck. They got six feet of water in the engine room. They immediately take off running downwind as fast as they possibly can. And they've got about five miles to go to get into the uh, breakwater at Fort Pierce, or maybe even a little less than that. But they uh, run downwind go through the breakwater at Fort Pierce with their stern underwater. And as soon as they get in through the breakwaters and, you know, and into the calm weather and past, past the actual breakwater, they go hard to starboard and run the tug aground so they don't sink. So, so our, so our safety net has sort of been uh, lost for this, but you know, meanwhile, we got no other choice at this point in time. We're just going to drop the anchor. Um, and ultimately we, uh, we anchor safely. Everything sort of slides in right behind us and we all sort of sit there um, nice and, you know, as calm as, as possible, um, you know, in these conditions sitting at anchor. Um, and and then we all decide we ought to put out a few more lines at this point in time. So we spend a whole lot of time getting some more of our mooring lines out and up and figuring out ways to get them back to the bow of the, uh, the Ocheron. Um, and we wind up sitting at anchor for about another day and a half until the storm systems all pass and we're able to go off and pass this thing off um, to someone else who can finish up the job. So I'm not going to ask you to describe it here, but the, the how you got the other lines back to to the tug is a story by itself. So And that's in the book. So I'm going to have to make people read it to find out how you did that. I didn't want to interrupt the interview with my advertising. So I'm going to do a quick one at the end. If you are studying for the ASA 101, the 103, or the 104, the American Sailing Association exams, I have audio courses for those exams. I can't teach you to sail, but I can help prepare you for the written portion of those exams. They're available at the website medsailor.com. So that's quick, that's painless, and please tune in next week for part two of this interview. And if you have any thoughts, 
drop me a note. Also, please tell your friends about this podcast. I'm trying to grow the audience. I appreciate it. Get out there and go sailing now. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be 10 years from now, you know? Thank <laughs> you.